0: I am joined by the very notable true crime author from Australia, Miss Vicky Petratus. And uh, for you listeners, you may have noticed that there wasn't an intro before the music, and that's because, it, <laughs> sorry for the housekeeping, Vicky, but I, I, for 100 episodes before I play the music, I record an intro that says who I'm about to talk to, and then this week, my producer said why do you do that? It just takes an extra hour of work just to put in that five-second blurb. So we're not going to do that anymore. And Vicki, thanks so much for joining me. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: Oh, so you are – what part of Australia are you in?
1: I am right down the bottom in Victoria and uh, from Melbourne.
0: Okay. So now is, is that – because the, the news we're getting here, I know a few months back, there was parts of Australia that were in like pretty crazy lockdown. And then like last week we were getting news that it was like really crazy lockdown going on. Are you in that part of Australia or are you guys a little more opened up?
1: Uh, You might be talking about Perth. So over in our west, we have a a state that's pretty much been free of coronavirus completely. And they are, I mean, it's creeping in now, but they're, they're pretty much locked down. They've closed their borders. But in Victoria, we locked down. I think we had a record of, of 270 or 280 days in increments last year. But we are uh, pretty much open now. And I think with vaccination, we just hope that it is sweeping through. But we're hoping that, uh, you know, it doesn't affect people too badly.
0: That's good. So how are you doing?
1: I haven't had it yet. So, um, really? But but yeah, but we we were kind of in a situation in Australia where it didn't sweep through until Omicron. And so I didn't really, I knew maybe one person who had had uh, coronavirus and all of a sudden within the last couple of weeks, pretty much everyone, everyone got it just like in the States.
0: Uh, Yeah. That's interesting because it's the exact opposite here. I was at a sporting event for one of my kids the other day and there was a bunch of us sitting around the bleachers and we got to talking. It was like, and, and there was like thirty of us in this area, and we're like, "Has anybody not had it at some point?" And no, like, I I don't know anyone that hasn't had it. So you're, you're like the first that somehow ski. I guess it's different. You guys are on an island down there. It's easier to. Plus, the you guys have had a lot more extreme lockdowns than us.
1: We did, and I think our borders closed as well. And I, I don't know. It's they call it the tyranny of distance, and I think we have um j- just the the distance away from the world, but. What also made it interesting was that because we were a couple of months behind everyone else we could watch what was happening and I guess almost predict what might happen here.
0: Right. So you had a little little heads up being yeah. a, little, a little more remote. Yeah. So t- tell me about you you're you're relatively new to the true crime podcast space but you've been writing true crime books um, I see that since t- as of 2020 you had written 16 16- is that right, the true crime books?
1: Yeah, I, I can't even remember. Um, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> you know, once, you, once you've done three or four, you just sort of lose count. But uh, I think it, it's also a bit hard to count because when you write a book, so for example, my third book was on a serial killer in Frankston, a suburb of Melbourne. And then, of course, for the 10-year anniversary, you put out the Frankston serial killer. And then for the 25th anniversary, you put out, a revised edition. So you sort of have these huge amount of titles. I, I can just show you, like they're all lined up behind me uh, <laughs> on the Zoom video. But uh, so it's sort of I don't know. You lose count. You stop counting. I think it might be eighteen or something now.
0: That, that's incredible. And you've you've won some awards. You won the Scarlet Stiletto Award for what was this? Best new talent for a fiction piece. Or are not all of your books true crime? Or are some of them fiction novels?
1: Okay, so most of them are, oh, yeah, all, all of my books are fiction, oh, sorry, non-fiction, but um, I'm doing a PhD at the moment, so I want to, I guess all writers want to challenge themselves, and I, I'm always looking for, once you've written this many books, you, you could write them, I always say, you could write them with one hand tied behind your back, you just type a bit slower, but um, I think we're all looking for the next writing challenge. And so, uh, quite a lot of my friends were doing the PhD in creative writing. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. And of course, I had no idea how to do a PhD. And so, I've written a fiction novel, which is, you know, it's on its way. It's going through the publishing process, but that's so exciting to make stuff up.
0: Yeah, I bet. And then, now, do you, when you wrote the fiction novel, were you able to like draw on all of your. Real life experiences from writing all the true crime stuff. The the totally,
1: not the true- <laughs> absolutely. I I don't know that I did make stuff up because so much of it was drawn from real life cases and real life um, encounters that I've had with people and conversations. And I think writers are just uh, thieves walking through the world, just stealing everybody's language <laughs> and expressions and thoughts and and it's all composted together in this fiction
0: Uh, oh that that's great and and so i I see that you're you're a teacher and a phd student and i'm interested so so erica wrote in my notes is that you you teach creative writing and gender roles in crime fiction that 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 definitely piqued my interest so Is that a class you teach? What what do you do as far as gender roles in crime fiction?
1: Yeah, so that that's what the PhD really is looking at, and it's looking at uh, what I wanted to do is explore uh, explore gender roles in crime fiction. That what do we expect from a a female? Like it was funny. I was at a lunch with some writers, and I said I want to create this female character, a female detective who's fearless. And that she just moves through the world and she's not afraid of anything. And I sort of based it on a real live, uh, retired detective that I'd interviewed who always said he didn't feel fear. And I thought, what, what would a character be like? And so a, a male writer at the table said, Oh, well, if she's fearless, she has to have some sort of, um, perhaps mental illness or she has to have some sort of, and I just, I thought about that and I thought, why, if we read Jack Reacher, we don't expect him to have uh, something that's really wrong with him, or something that's you know we ju- we just expect him to be to turn up every day and be a hero. And mm-hmm. when I suggested that we have a female character that would could be like that, it was all of a sudden what could we lump on top of her to stop her from being that? And I thought, oh my goodness, every woman, uh, every woman knows women heroes in their lives we see women you know getting three kids ready for school and battling the lunchboxes and you know women are heroes and so i wanted to sort of explore that in this writing so up until december last year i was i worked in secondary schools and then this year i'm taking a year off so i am ridiculously excited to not have to be a teacher full time and a writer full time and to just work one full time job and not two,
0: right? So, is your is is your fiction work? Does that does, do we have a, a female heroine in the in the fictional book?
1: Oh yes, and she's fearless. <laughs> and there's, she's fearless. I found, yeah, I found this quote by Mary Shelley in Frankenstein, and it says, "Beware, for I am fearless; therefore, I am powerful." And this is what it's all about. It was like this in the male cop that I interviewed. That he would go into situations where people would have a gun pointing at his head, or he would confront the worst kind of criminals. In his, uh, he he was in the 1950s and 60s, and he never felt fear. He said he only felt fear for his children and his his uh, house. And if ever he was threatened, he would double the threat against organized crime figures and say, you know, for every if you touch. A hair on the head of any of my children, I will behead you. <laughs> so he was pretty right. tough. He would come back with, I'll raise you, you know, something right. huge. And I just, I really wanted to say, could we create a character of a, f- a female detective that walks through life and just doesn't feel that fear for herself?
0: That's interesting. It, it, it's interesting. I just heard, and I'm trying to remember where I heard it. Um, or read it but it was it was just recently i remember the quote i couldn't tell you where i heard it or who it came from uh but it said that you that you can't have bravery absent fear that 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 bravery is you know moving forward in the face of fear so it's an interesting paradox when i'm thinking about this about somebody who is brave because they don't have any fear
1: i feel like you can be brave and stupid <laughs> Um, I often say <laughs> that when I became a writer, it is not not stupid, but it in ignorance. So when you are a writer, uh, I heard a quote that talked about writers um, push on despite the fact, despite any evidence that anyone's going to want to read what you write. So writers mm-hmm. step into this space with this complete confidence that not only can they do it without any evidence, without any supporting evidence, but they step into this space believing that someone will want to read this. And I think I was motivated not by fearlessness, so, or it was a fearlessness based on ignorance. I had no idea how hard it was. And right. <laughs> I don't know, podcasting is the same. When um, I was talking to the Casefile host and he said, hey, you should make a podcast with us. And I went, Okay. And I think stepping into that space with a complete lack of understanding of what that means and how hard it is, like taking on a PhD, and then you figure it out as you go along, and you trust that you'll figure it out. But I think that I'm totally fearless because of ignorance, not because of any kind of bravery or...
0: (laughs) That's that's funny. You know, I I spent 16 years as a fireman, and... There were a lot of you. Know, I moved through the ranks quickly, and there was a lot of guys that thought that I was this big, brave, tough guy. And to be honest with you, I was scared to death all the time. It right. was there was always a lot of self talk that you know. And when, when you're in a burning building and things are falling down around you, and and you had to pretend that you weren't scared to death that you were going to get trapped in there and and burn up. That's wow. totally so, yeah.
1: scary. That I totally get that.
0: Yeah, and you were never, as we always said, never let them see you bleed. We're never never let anybody know that you were. Terrified the entire time that you were in there, and I definitely had a few times where uh, there were some close calls where I s- certainly let my fe- my my fear be be known in 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 the firefighter world. That was never um, no one ever let that go. I would hear about it for you. Remember that time you started to fall through the floor and you started screaming like there was little green aliens coming in the house.
1: That's not only uh, you know you're afraid to reveal your fear, but you're afraid that they'll laugh at you forever because you right. do it. Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I'm lucky, Bob, because I never, ever felt the fear. And I read Twitter posts where writers have this, um, they have a, a fear imposter syndrome. Or I, write, I started writing when I was so young that I don't think that was invented then. And so I just skipped happily through this process of not knowing how to do it and figuring it out. And I just, I, I never gave a lot of thought to, audience or anything like that I just pushed on with what I wanted to write so maybe that helped as well
0: yeah that's amazing that you've been able to navigate the space that way because you know like even me getting into podcasting gosh was it's going on seven years ago now that that imposter syndrome was a real thing all of a sudden you get popular and people are looking at you like you're you know you're a content creator you're some sort of celebrity type and you're just like they don't like I just I just got done shoveling my driveway. Uh, and and recorded a podcast in my shed like this is not I'm not who you think I am
1: I I had that at school like school is the great leveler and I teach um year 8 which I guess it's your middle school so the the kids are about 13 or 14 and okay. if I do an author talk at night and it might have 300 people come up and people want to ha- take selfies with me and I say to the kids the next day Ah, oh, some people wanted to take a selfie, and they literally just roll their eyes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my kids do the same thing, because every once in a while I'll get recognized somewhere. And then, of course, I'm always like, Did you... excuse me, kids, I've got to take a break for one of my many fans that wants to take a picture with me. And do they roll their eyes? <laughs> always, yeah. And then my my uh, 17-year-old is, is very good about Getting online and researching uh, the Reddit threads dedicated solely to hating on me. It's like, well, yeah, well, this guy says that you're an asshat. So it doesn't really matter. The, That's that fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely keeps you keeps you humble for sure. So, t- you know, I, I was just listening to the beginnings of uh, The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron, which is the case we're going to talk about today. And now, that was because you've done a newer podcast since, since then that you've released. Uh, so I want to briefly talk about that, and then we're going to circle back to the Vivian Cameron case because that's our case that we're going to discuss today. But this year, you've released it's a spot. Now, one thing for my listeners: if you want to check out either of these works, they're both Spotify um, exclusive. So you you can you're not going to get them on iTunes or Google Play anywhere. You got to go to Spotify to get them. But the new podcast is called "Searching for Sarah McDermid." That's the right pronunciation. Yeah and that was nine episodes, it was released in 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that show?
1: When the first podcast came out, uh, the I guess when you're a writer, this is how writers operate too, that the minute a book is finished, I'm on to the next one. So by the time the actual book comes out, because there can be a turnaround time of maybe six months, and you always have to think back and go, what was that book about again? Because I'm I'm really deep in the new one. And the same thing happened with um, the vanishing of Vivian Cameron. The minute that was finished, I said to Casefile, what's next, what's next? And mm-hmm. they have a, a thing where you can request a case, and they'd had a few people requesting the case of Sarah McDermott. When Sarah went missing in 1990, I was living around the corner from where she oh, – around the corner, five minutes away from where she vanished – And it made the headlines for so long because she literally got off a train at 1020 at night in July and she walked down a ramp to, from the station to the car park and vanished. And police had found traces of her blood near the car and they had found evidence, drag marks to suggest that she was attacked at the door of her car, dragged into the bushes adjacent to the car park and left there for some time because there was enough blood soaked into the soil to suggest that she had been left there. And then somebody had come back for her, and she was gone. And I had been in contact with Sarah's mum and dad, Peter and Sheila, for quite a few years. And, and they'd come to library talks that I do, and I had met with them a few times. And I, I got in touch with them, and I said, do you want to give this one last big push worldwide? And, uh, they, they didn't really know what a podcast was. They, they, but they said, Oh, you know, yeah, that'd be great. So, uh, I spent a lot of time talking to them and basically just retraced the steps of this case. And it came out last November, but these, um, these cases, it, it it's so exciting to be able to give them another run and just to say, if anything's out there, uh, let, let's see what, what comes out of it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, a, a. I think it's one of the great things that have come out of the explosion of the true crime podcast space is, I mean there there are cases getting solved all the time, just from the exposure that you know true crime podcasters like yourself are bringing the, uh, these cases back into the zeitgeist. They're getting people talking about them, again. they're they're kind of rattling the bushes and and seeing if there's any new information out there. Now circling back to the vanishing of Vivian Camera. Now in in the first episode. Of that series, you talk about. I think it's the host of Case File that that is on at the beginning, and then and then you come on, and you guys talk a little bit about how you came to be all of a sudden a podcast host. Um, but can, can you tell that because the uh, the Vivian Cameron case was was that the first book? that you, the first case that you wrote about in a book years before this?
1: Yeah, that was the ironic part of it. I had written the book back in 1993, it came out, and I was in my early 20s when I started investigating this case and wrote the book, and again, I was a primary teacher or elementary school teacher back then, and so teaching by night and then interviewing police and stuff on the weekends, and so I stumbled my way through that book and it came out. And it caused a bit of a splash. And then it kind of went out of print and it wasn't a story that um, w- was in the news a lot. And so then every now and again, it just it seemed like the case never would die. Every time it sort of went quiet, someone would want to do a TV show on it or they would do a uh, story on it. And it just kept popping back up. And then a few people had approached me about doing a podcast series about it, but it felt like I'd been following this case and looking at it for so long, for 30 years. And it felt like anyone that wanted to do the podcast on it that wasn't me wouldn't be able to give it that full history. And I was talking to the case file host about that very thing and he just said, do it with us. And I went, Okay. So I I felt like in that moment, everything changed because I had been writing in the true crime space for over 30 years. And I felt like if I didn't step up to the plate and join the podcasting true crime space, then I wasn't, um I don't know, you're almost obliged to, aren't you? Because I, I'm such a, a veteran in this area and that this is the next iteration of true crime and i needed to step into the arena so i i just thought okay i'll i'll give it a crack and uh, i rang my niece and she she has a podcast studio and i said to her can you help me with this cuz i don't know how to do it and she went sure so again it's saying yes to something that you don't know how to do but trusting that trusting myself as a learner and trusting that i'll be able to figure it out and so I started interviewing straight away, I started scripting, I recorded an episode, my niece put it all together, and I sent it to the Case File host and I said oh, I've done episode 1. And he later said to me, he said I was waiting for you to ask us how to do it. And I <laughs> thought to myself, I ne- that didn't even occur to me to say to him, so, how do you do this? Do- yeah, anyway. Again, this motivated by Ignorance. And so I just did it. And he really liked what I did. I brought to podcasting that sense of being a storyteller, and those skills transferred over seamlessly. And so I went back and I interviewed all the people that I interviewed for the book that I could find. And I figured out that true crime podcasting was really in a book. You might say, the policeman stood at the gate and talked to the two witnesses. And in a podcast, you say the policeman stood at the gate and talked to two witnesses, and then the policeman comes on and says, yeah, so anyway, I was standing at the gate with the two witnesses, right. <laughs> and that's how it works. And so it turned out that whatever it was that I bring to true crime writing, that I have a, a dedicated audience of of fans, the people in the podcasting world really seem to connect and resonate with with what I... Brought to that, so I was always very interested in the victims. So it wasn't about, hey, victim number one, victim number two. uh, Let's get on with the what happened to them. It was always very much who were these women, who were these people, what was taken. That's that's my big question. What was taken? Because to understand the impact of true crime, we have to know what was taken. It's like if you say, hey, somebody broke into my house and stole stuff. That only, we only give that a context if we know what they stole. So if you go, they stole my grandmother's priceless jewellery that that was the last thing I had of Nana, then that's really sad. If they break into your house and they stole your iPad, which was insured, then that's the impact isn't so great. So it's kind of the same thing to know what he took. Uh, We had to know truly what was taken. And that to me is all about the women. Uh, in In the case of the vanishing of Vivian Cameron that there was a bigger story that sometimes women become um, an add on to uh when I wrote about the Frankson serial killer. We have you know his victims elizabeth eighteen Natalie seventeen, and I wanted more for Natalie and Elizabeth to be Natalie seventeen who was she and that 's what i 've always done just intuitively i 'm not trained in writing i 'm very much self taught and I wanted intuitively to be able to give the human side of the story, and then of course in podcasting, that's completely something that people email me about and say, "Wow, this is this was surprising."
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely love the production, and you know, to my audience, it's no secret. One of my you know my favorite kind of sound design is precisely what you do, where you're you're giving a beautiful narration, and then the voices are always changing. When you're listening, you know, you'll narrate us into a scene and then someone else's voice will come. You know, the, the officer comes in and says, yeah, so I was standing at the gate or, you know, as, as you explained it. Um, so the, the production is is fantastic. And I think you do a great job of bringing the victims to life. I like the way that you put it, that it's important to because I've always been very victim centric too with, with my with my work. But I like the way that you put it, that you, know, you need to know what was taken. And therefore, you know, when a life is taken, you need to know what that life was, what that person, you know, uh, you know who they were, and what their feelings, hopes, and dreams were. And, and this case is really interesting. When I first read about it, it seemed like a pretty open and shut case, other than the 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 fact that 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 uh, Vivian's body was never found. Go ahead and give us the the, the beat of the of the case, which is the uh, the murder of. Beth Bernard, and then the disappearance of Vivian Cameron, who was believed to be the murderer of Beth Bernard.
1: Yeah, it it was one of those cases that did look open and shut. And it certainly, when I came to the case five years after, it was open and shut. That's how it had been treated. So um, a 36-year-old farmer called Fergus Cameron lived on a little island in... um, off the coast of Victoria down south, there's two bays. One is Port Phillip Bay, and the next one down is Western Port Bay. And Western Port Bay has two islands, and one is Phillip Island and one is French Island. And so Phillip Island is connected to the mainland by a bridge, and it has a population certainly about uh, back then of about 5,000 people, and then that swells to hundreds of thousands of people over the summer. And... It's it's very much a farming community. So Fergus Cameron was a farmer. He was married to Vivian, who was 35. They had two little kids. And he starts having an affair with a farmhand called Beth Barnard. And she, uh, Vivian finds out. And one night her and Fergus have an argument in which he says she attacks him with a wine glass and smashes it into his ear and stabs him in the back with it. Uh, he's injured. She takes him to the local hospital. At no time at the hospital do they admit what's happened to him to cause these injuries. They go home and it's decided, according to him, that he said Vivian agreed to divorce him, to move off the island and go back to Melbourne, to leave her two children with Fergus and that he could move his girlfriend into the house. And a lot of women find that hard to believe. And so she dropped him up the road to his sister's place. They All the family lived on this one uh, road on Phillip Island. They all had farms at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And then at 3.10, other family friends got a phone call from Vivian saying, we're at the hospital, the kids are home alone, could you go and pick them up? And then at 3.20, over the other side of the island, a neighbour heard a car go past her place and turn around where Beth lived and the next morning when the family land cruiser is missing from the farm, uh, Fergus becomes worried for Beth and sends his brother and brother-in-law over to her place to check on her and, uh, and, and they find her murdered and she's got a huge A carved into her chest. Her throat has been cut. It's a really brutal murder. And so the police are called, the brothers go to the police station and they call, they tell the police that Beth's not well and the police go out there and of course they discover she's very much not well, she's deceased. And the police believed right from the start and were told by the family, Vivian had threatened Beth and Fergus said when they pulled up at the hospital, she said, I'm just going to get that bitch. And so the police figured, okay, we've got a threat, we've got a phone call in the middle of the night, we've got a car heard 10 minutes later, we've got Vivian's missing at this stage, and um, and so we think she did it. And I've just found out really recently, post-podcast, that Beth's family were told that she died on the Tuesday, the 23rd of September 1986, and they were told that day that she had been murdered by Vivian. So this is before any investigation, any autopsy, any questioning of the family. So it feels like, as you said before, open and shut. And Vivian was never found. The car was later found parked near about 500 metres from the bridge. I don't know what that is in miles, half a kilometre. And and the, the police concluded and the coroner concluded, wow, she must have jumped off the bridge the end and her body was never found. And it wasn't until the scientific evidence came back, and I'm not sure how closely the police looked at it, that the blood evidence didn't match the story. So for example, Fergus said, Vivian hit me with a wine glass, and then I walked into the spare room and I sat down on the bed in the spare room, and there was blood on the floor in the spare room and blood on the bed in the spare room. But it turned out it wasn't his, it was Vivian's. And there's a lot of blood at the house that's not his blood. And so I don't, I don't know whether the police ever went back and said, hey, this story, visually, it looks like the story that you told, but it doesn't match the evidence. There was no transference of, uh, the, the murder was brutal. But there was no transference. If Vivian murdered Beth, there's none of Beth's blood in the car that she drove away in. There's no, there's, there's two droplets of Vivian's blood at Beth's house on the path outside. Uh, but if, if someone had hurt Vivian, I feel like that could have come in on the tread of someone's shoes. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, just, there's just not that nexus of, of evidence that the police are looking for that says, okay, here's the story. Does the evidence match the story? And it didn't. So, it, and then it, it just a year later, the coroner found that Vivian had killed Beth. And then two years later, even without a body, Vivian was declared dead, and that she was declared to be a killer. And then it was just—I don't know if you—I I guess every every country has places like Phillip Island, but it's like a little country town, and it's a place where. People didn't talk about it out of respect for the family, and the family were wealthy, mm-hmm. the family were powerful, they owned the Grand Prix racetrack that was just starting up. People just – it was not open for discussion. And I think what my book did five years later is it started people talking again, and then the podcast, big time, started people talking again. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it's one of those cases where on its face – so it, it kind of breeze past it, but so so um, Beth was her throat was slit, she was stabbed multiple times, and then in A the letter A like the scarlet letter was carved into her chest, and so there's everything points to of the scorned the scorned wife whose husband was cheating on her, the husband's the one that helps paint that picture, and then you know she disappears, so which, it's odd her body wasn't found. Usually when someone goes into eventually they float and then they'll come up somewhere uh kind of odd that her body was never found but then yeah when you start digging a little bit deeper it's like it's almost looks too perfect that that that, you know it it fits too too well that it that would be hers so then you you dig a little closer yeah and all of a sudden now the wine glass hit over the head story doesn't seem to line up with the forensic evidence how did she do such a brutal murder and then get in her car and not leave a drop of blood in her car there's all these things and then there was um if i remember correctly from reading about it there was you know the police said that her the vivian's purse was found in her car near where they think she jumped off the bridge but then other family members and this was apparently corroborated saw her purse in the house earlier that day after when she supposedly would have died.
1: Yeah, so what happened was and, and again, you pick at the edge of any of this and it doesn't add up. So when the people came to pick up the kids in the middle of the night, they got there at, you know, 3:20, and they're picking up the kids, they saw her purse just when they came in the back door, they went, "Oh, that's Vivian's uh, purse." And so that purse was later found in the in the car on the other side of the island. So what that means is that if Vivian rang them, drove all the way over to the other side of the island, killed Beth. The coroner found that she then drove to the bridge and jumped off. But but how did the purse get from the house into the car? So then you say, well, did she drive all the way back over the other side of the island, get the purse, put it in the car, and then drive over to the bridge? So it just scratched the surface and and none of this makes sense. And what I think has become more obvious um, talking to police about this and these are retired police because you can't really talk to serving members it's very difficult to get any kind of um access to police easily here so talking to retired members they 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 rang a few of them got in touch and said why weren't the family interviewed the family gave statements and I guess when I was very young writing this book, I didn't understand the difference between giving a statement and being interviewed. By giving a statement, you sit down and you say, well, this happened, then this happened, this happened, and then you sign it. And being interviewed is being really interrogated about what you're saying. So if you say, hey, I went into the spare room and I was bleeding, and the police say, but that blood's not yours. Oh, okay. And and they weren't they weren't interviewed um the the wine glass was never found the sister who came to mind the kids when they went to the hospital uh she said oh, i cleaned it up but it was never found in the bin yeah the, and the, the whole family was sort of they left them for two days and then they all gave statements the statements were all very similar and i don't think that th- this was ever challenged and some of the things that they said can't be true uh, there's lots of and it's you know quite involved. You have to listen to the podcast or read the book, but even the next morning, I I, f- I find that really interesting when they discover that Vivian's not at the house and the car's missing because the woman that had the kids is trying to ring the family saying, "I've still got the kids. W- what do I mm-hmm. do with them? Where's Vivian?" And the the whole family, the immediate response seems to be, uh, "I'm really worried about Beth now." why are they worried about Beth, for one? And why don't they look for Vivian? None of them look for her. And they didn't ring her family. They didn't ring any of her friends. They None of them look for Vivian. And I've been thinking about that recently, that just say your brother said to you yesterday, hey, you know, I've been having an affair and she's 23. And then, the next, and then today he rings and says, Oh, my wife found out and she's missing, but could you go tell the girlfriend? You'd be going, Well, where's your wife? That's my sister in law. That's the mother of, right. of my two little nephews. Why? How could you not look for her? How could you prioritize telling the 23 year old girlfriend that you yeah, had just found out about that something had happened? Uh, Fergus never says that he tries to call her. And it, it's just odd. It's just odd behavior.
0: Well, it's a, it's a super complex case. Again, And what's most interesting about it is that it seems like it's not very complex on the surface. But then as you tell the story, uh, it becomes very complex. Uh, and, and the best way to hear that whole story is to check it out. Her name is Vicki Petratus. The podcast is called The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. And remember, that is only on Spotify. So check it out on Spotify. You can also check out her other podcasts uh, that's, that's newer this year just within the last six months, Searching for Sarah McDermott. Uh, both of those can be found on Spotify. And Vicki, thank you so much for joining me and taking the time to sit down and, and tell this story.
1: Thank you so much for having me.